welcome to The Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. All right, my friends, welcome officially to season four of the Lifted Podcast. (laughs) I'm so happy to have you here. I'm really honored that you're here. I know that there are a lot of other podcasts out there, so it means a lot to me that you're here and uh, sharing this space with myself and with these awesome guests that are coming on. We've got a really great lineup in the works. So I hope otherwise you guys are doing real well. I know that we have been going through kind of an intense time astrologically. We just came out of this wild eclipse portal for the past couple of weeks, I feel like the universe has been throwing curveballs left and right. And uh, it's a good lesson in staying grounded, staying compassionate with ourselves and honoring whatever's coming up. And I've been thinking a lot about just approaching my emotions as I would with a child, you know, if a child was in front of you throwing a tantrum or really upset about something or just, you know, needed to release emotion, we would hold space for them, right? We would let them cry. We would let them take a nap or give them a snack, right? So why do we treat ourselves any differently? So really honoring the spaces that you're in as you ebb and flow out of different emotions and uh, be gentle with yourselves. Just wanted to throw that out there because I think we're, a lot of us are experiencing some some crazy shifts during this time. So anyways, let's get into today's episode, today's guest. We've got the beautiful Maimuna Katan joining us. Maimuna's actually become a lovely friend of the house here in Topanga, and I met her a couple months ago at a film panel, film part of a film festival around intersectionality, indigenous wisdom, and uh, environmental protection. So that was a really cool space to be able to meet her in. And then to have her on this podcast was really a nice chance to get to know her more deeply and uh, truly understand what she's been working so diligently on for years. So I will give you her background uh, before we get into our chat. So Maimuna is Afro-Indigenous to East Africa, and she was born in a refugee camp. And she's also an executive entrepreneur and world traveler. So there's a beautiful arc to her life that we talk about throughout this episode. And her parents were also refugees. So it really has shaped her life in a beautiful way and a very meaningful way. And for the last decade, Maimuna has been the CEO of the TIA Foundation, which is an award-winning grassroots organization that supports families of immigrants and refugees and displaced Americans. And in her work, she's been helping to transform the sentiments that we have and the narratives around refugees in particularly Southern California. Maimuna has really led the way on record-breaking initiatives, including the creation of innovative programs and services that impact nearly 1,000 people every year. Uh, That includes increasing job creation, um, developing entrepreneurship opportunities, and recreational sports for children from low-income immigrant households. So her work is deeply focused on immigrants, refugees, and displaced Americans and and helping them career-wise, socially, emotionally. It's all tied together, right? She's also spearheaded fruitful partnerships with many global organizations, and locally she's been recognized by the Office of L.A., Uh, was a PBS Local Hero nominee and was selected for Woman of the Year by Congressman Adam Schiff. 
Notably, she's also established Flavors from Afar, which is a, a restaurant and a social enterprise that employs former refugees as chefs in Orange County and Los Angeles. And today the restaurant is located in Little Ethiopia on Fairfax. And it's such a cool thing that they've got going on over there. Flavors from Afar is directly linked to the Tia Foundation. So she's just awesome. She's an awesome businesswoman. She has a really beautiful outlook on life in general. And uh, I'm so honored that she was willing to sit down and share her story with us today. So please enjoy this episode. And while you're listening, you can find Maymuna uh, on Instagram at Maymuna Katan. It's linked in the description below as well. And uh, yeah, hit us up while you're listening. Let us know what you're learning. Uh, I've created a new Instagram page as well for the podcast. It's at the lifted podcast on Instagram. So you can find all you know, all the episode updates there, some fun little memes, <laughs> Instagram vibes. So thanks again for being here. And I'll talk to you on the flip side. The first question I always love to ask guests is how do you like to begin your days? Do you have any rising routines or rituals that you go to? Yes. Yeah, so as a mom, um, my routine is my daughter. She is the alarm clock. <laughs> um, no matter what time she goes to bed, she'll be up at sunrise. So once um, she's up, you know, we're just ready to go. Um, I don't know what it is about four-year-olds, but they just wake up with all the energy. Um, and then I just need a moment to, you know, calibrate, get my coffee, but, um, I enjoy it. it. It's a nice way to spend some quality time together before our busy schedules start. So, um, she's in school, you know, I'm working full time. Um, so that's, that's our, our family time. Yeah. Beautiful. So you find that your daughter's actually like the, it's getting you up in the morning, positive vibes. <laughs> You're ready to go for the day. Well, I didn't say positive. Um. <laughs> <laughs> A little, maybe yeah. a little chaotic. A little, a little, but it's fun. She's, she's in a phase right now where um, she's really curious about fashion. So when she wakes up, it's all about what is she going to wear, you know, for the day. And then she might have like, you know, three or four outfit changes until she finds like the perfect one. <laughs> We love that for her. Love that. Yeah. Yes. You know, I always try to gauge, you know, how people find their like peace to begin the day and really set their intention. Like, how do you make sure that you go into the day as present as possible in essence and, and just you feel grounded yourself? Is there anything that helps you get into that space? Yeah. So um, I'm a practitioner of uh, nature and Buddhism and um, the group is called um, SGI. And it's a, it's a type of um, meditation chanting that you do that activates all five senses. So when I need that reactivation, when I need to feel centered, um, I just go to Michael Hunzen to figure it out. And um, it's been great for me. I really enjoy it. I've been practicing since 2014 now. Cool. How have you seen yourself change over the span of your practice? Well, um, I feel like my life is an evidence, um, like no matter what I'm going through at the moment, um, it just helps me manifest whatever it is that my goal needs. And then, um, if it's not meant for me, then through meditation, through chanting, um, uh, my environment is cleansed. So 
that's been really beautiful. And environment meaning clean, cleanse meaning like, um, you know, I, yeah, just, it's kind of like a reset, however way you look at like endings to relationships or endings to um, a certain like obstacle or the beginning of a new obstacle. Like I see that as a cleanse. Mm, yeah, that's a really beautiful way to reset and, and gain perspective. And I feel like having a similar practice to you, it gives me a sense of trust and faith. It's like kind of unshakable in a way so that even if things feel like they're derailing, it gives us like a sense of trust that like, it's actually working out for me. Everything's going to yeah. be okay. Yeah. 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 Cause the chant is so innocent. All you're saying is I submit to the laws of cause and effect. That's all you're saying over and over again. So, um, and you know, it's Namyoho Renge Kyo. So that's, for me, that's been um, a really guiding force for me. Um, and then my religious background, you know, my family background is Muslim. So there are those like values that have been put in place around um, really prioritizing charity, uh, prioritizing neighbors, um, having like, there's a saying that like you can't help others unless like your home is in order. So um, I always keep those values with me, but um, spiritually I would say meditation has been my go-to. I would love to hear more about your transition into meditation and spirituality um, growing up Muslim. Like what was that shift for you? Like, like for you? Yeah. um, I, I feel like it's, Islam is a beautiful religion, um, and it's one of the fastest growing religions in the world that people are um, very drawn to um, and attracted to for different various reasons. Um, myself, though, I struggled in that space because I, um, I grew up in Orange County, um, not a lot of like Black African immigrant women in like my age group. so. I was interacting with communities that um, inherited certain beliefs around colorism. And then for me, as Maimuna, um, that kind of played into my spirituality, um, not as a compliment. You know, it actually, for me, it, it became um, very challenging for me because I see the spiritual space as so um, personal and sacred. Um, and then when I was having these types of challenges socially, um, yeah, I just, I had to figure out what was the best route for me without um, walking away from religion completely, you know? So I've never like denounced any religion, but I just need to figure out like, what is, um, who am I? What fuels me? What do I need? Um, and as a sensitive person, um, I, I love the chanting aspect because it activates all five of my senses. Um, I love that it's just very simple, you know, about cause and effect. It's not about good or bad. Um, and then the people I've met um, along the way that also practice um, SGI, Nietzsche and Buddhism, um, they too are a lot of creatives or um, entrepreneurs or they um, just really believe in like the power of the mind and like manifestation. So it's, it's been nice. And then those people range from 
Jewish background, Christian background, Muslim background, atheist, agnostic, like whatever you um, identify as the, um, the practice works. So that's been really lovely. I, and why, why would it not work? I mean, if you keep repeating the same thing over and over again, it's going to happen. Yeah. And there's something so powerful in having a practice like that to bring you back and to continue to ground you over and over again. So any kind of stability like that is so beneficial. And I love the chant like about cause and effect. I've never really heard it um, phrased like that. And it's so cool because it, it gives you the sense of responsibility for your own well-being in the midst of universal forces, which I think is so powerful in tandem. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I mean, and I think that's like the basis of any religion, right? Like what you do, this is the outcome, but I like that it's not um, based on good or bad. If anything, um, what I've learned through um, Buddhism is that all bad things have something good for you. And then all good things might have something bad for you, you know? So um, it's all in perspective. Yeah. Love that. So Maimuna, I will have given an introduction about who you are a little bit and what you've been up to recently, but I would love to hear more about your childhood, your upbringing, and your parents' story as well, if you're open to sharing that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so a little bit about us. Um, our family is Gari. We are a tribe, a nomadic tribe from East Africa. Um, and you can find us like throughout Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, like nomads. We're known for um, being merchants with camel. We're camel merchants, I guess you could say, is the background. And um, so when you have like tribes and clans, like there is like also like your bigger like nation or ethnic group that you're a part of. So the ethnic group that I guess I would identify as would be Oromo. So there's, um, there would be Oromo, then there's like, you know, different tribes and then different clans and then more clans underneath all that. I'm sharing that to say that we were directly affected by colonization um, as Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya were being forced, uh, formed. And um, each generation has witnessed uh, violence or displacement. So my mother's generation um, from the Ethiopian side um, there was conflict in the 70s. So both sides of my family, my father, and my mother's side fled and went to a refugee camp in Somalia. And that's where my parents met. Uh, they got married. I was born on the camp. Uh, my dad was resettled first in 1983 by the International Rescue Committee. Um, there was that family separation. So we reunited with him in 84 in San Diego. Um, not long after he got employment in Orange County. I grew up in Orange County. And I felt very isolated and far away from the black diaspora. I don't think I had many black students at my school until high school. And that was because of the local military base. Like we were pretty close to like um, El Toro military base, Tustin military base at the time. So um, even those friends were kind of visiting, you know, they're like, military kids are always like in transit somewhere. So, um, yeah, so that, that was kind of, that was my upbringing. And then I remember around 99, um, there were East Africans. So this is after high school. So they were, these were, I graduated in 98. So like 90, uh, 99, <laughs> um, there were, um, East African refugees that were being resettled in Orange County. A lot of them spoke Somali and my mom started volunteering. 
and um, supporting uh, these communities with basic necessities and translation and what have you. So over the course of the decade, while I was uh, figuring out how to be a woman in this country, uh, my mom was pursuing her philanthropic side. So in um, 2010, while I was in grad school, TIA was my thesis project because I really leaned in um, the curiosity of being um, second generation or first generation child in this country and um, trying to navigate spaces and feeling rooted here. So that was my thesis project. I helped her start the nonprofit. 2012 hits, my mom's PTSD is triggered. So she steps away from the organization and then that's when I stepped up as executive director. Amazing. So there's, it's such a cool tie too that you were able to begin uh, this project with your mother. I think that's really beautiful. And I'm curious to know, so I think a lot of us have trouble really understanding and putting ourselves in the shoes of someone who is experiencing displacement and is in a camp like that. Can you enlighten us and help us understand like what's the reality of displacement like this and finding yourself in a camp and the nature of, of that situation? Um, did yeah. your parents give you some insight into what that was like? Yeah, so the stories that my mother would share was always around resources or lack of resources. You know, there would be, um, you know, a certain amount of food that they were given or a certain amount of water that they were given. And then there's this expectation to share with your neighbors or who's nearby you or they're fighting over resources. So, um, yeah, so that was quite interesting or knowing that you just couldn't eat. Like I know... Um, she had trouble when she was pregnant with me. There were times where she had to go, you know, knock on someone's door or tent or whatever and, you know, request um, food for herself, you know. So um, there's also stories of how she would work locally, um, and not as a domestic worker, but like as a farm worker. She would go pick tomatoes and her pay was the tomatoes. So sometimes like on her way back to the refugee camp, she would um, sell tomatoes just to make a few dollars and then bring that back to her family. And mom was an orphan. So um, there was just like layers of trauma that she was dealing with because she had lost her dad um, before she was born um, as grandma was pregnant. And then when she was five, grandma dropped her off at a relative's house. So at the age of 12 now she's on a refugee camp with these relatives and like trying to figure out how to like make ends meet you know and the thing that people don't know about um displacement and re the refugee journey is um the wait time on a camp could be up to 17 years and after you pass the 20 year mark now you're looking at these like um they're called um there's a term for it, but it's basically displaced people that are stateless. So you have these like stateless cities and towns all over the world of refugees just waiting to be resettled. Wow. And then what does the resettlement process look like? So are you just kind of on a list waiting for resettlement? And like, what does that even entail? Well, if you're lucky enough to get it, um, my mom was on the camp for eight years. That's how long she waited. Um, yeah, so if you're lucky, um, you might have an anchor somewhere 
who could vouch for you. Um, so let's say the anchor lives in Washington um, state, you could be resettled in Oregon. So somewhere like nearby the anchor. Um, the decision makers and all the background checks and all, all that, that's through Homeland Security, Office of Refugee Resettlement. It's like one interview process after another, the International Office, um, IOM, so International Office of Migration. So all these interview processes that you're going to through, um, they do intense background checks. So like I tell a story, then they'll interview my sister to make sure that my story is correct. Yeah. Oh, wow. Or I tell a story and then they'll wait a couple of days to make sure that like my story is the same. You know, it, there, there's a lot that um, goes behind it. So once you're resettled here through the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, then you are designated um, to, um, it's called a VOLAG, but these are um, resettlement agencies. Um, but here's the catch. The resettlement agency's job is to help find you housing, um, make sure all your paperwork is in order, make sure you have your work permit going, and then after 90 days, you're a closed case. Mm -hmm. 90 days. So what does that leave, you know, people dealing with when, they, when the case closes in 90 days? Like, what, what is the reality of that struggle next? Yeah, so if you have children, um, there are ways that you could apply for welfare, um, or maybe you could hope that you you're qualified for Section 8 housing, and the landlord accepts your voucher, your housing voucher, but that isn't the case. So um, families do receive a welcome check, but it's just enough for first month's rent, deposit, um, and like basic necessity stuff. Um, I think the maximum amount of aid could be like up to eight months, but um, we're seeing now with Afghan families, they're here at a high influx and they have motel vouchers that will expire in 30 days. Um, and we know of 40 families right now in Orange County that are, um, are dealing with like housing insecurity because there's just not enough uh, resources that was all like cut during like the previous administration. They cut a lot of those resources. Wow. So like, for example, what, what, what it looked like. So if somebody initially comes in and they might get like five to eight months and now they get like 30 days, did that, was it that drastic of a cut? Um, no, the cuts actually happened with um, capacity for the nonprofits that help refugees. So for example, Tia, um, as I mentioned, I stepped up to be the executive director. Um, I was able to acquire a government contract that lasted about three years. So by 2017, I knew the contract was ending. 2018, I really had to think about sustainability. Um, that's how we started the Flavors from Afar, originally as a catering um, concept. 2019, I was the only employee there. So that's just like on a, um, in like a micro level, like what happened and how it affected me. Mm -hmm. um, on a grander scale, you're talking about like 86 organizations that were operating in Orange County to help refugee families um, that all downsized to about 38. Wow. So there's just not enough manpower right now to help refugee families. And then you have this huge influx that arrived, you know, 50,000 Afghans that are now being processed at local um, military bases, but 
there is no infrastructure. Right. So um, could you take us through, like, what does TIA do? Like, what's the function of TIA? And like, what happens there? And how does it compare to the other nonprofits? Like, what's the, the circuit like there? Yeah. So other nonprofits that help refugees are usually the resettlement agencies. They have like a ton of like government, not a ton, sorry, anymore, but they used to have a ton of resources from the government. Now, um, with all these, like, it's like they're trying to rehabilitate right now. But um, after the 90 days is when Tia steps in. So um, the families that we do work with do have shelter. Um, that's something we try to work on. We've dabbled. Um, we've been successful helping four families secure housing. Um, and that's been like through direct partnership with landowners um, who might have like an extra unit or an extra bedroom, you know, home. I'm talking about homeowners, apartment building owners, what have you. Um, but ideally TIA is created for after the emergency, after the resettlement happens. And then we help people, um, navigate spaces here. So either with have, getting career placement or, um, being part of our, our restaurant concept. Um, we help like different cohorts, like mother, children, economic advancement, community development community development side would be for individuals that identify as like first or second generation immigrant or BIPOC um, who want to help um, communities or feel connected to the story. Um, so that's been really beautiful to see. We'll have like focus groups and like dinners and gatherings for them. Um, and then on the, the service side, it's, it's all about the money. Mm-hmm. It's all about the money. It's all about resources. Like how do you, how do you help people um, experience upward mobility, either through um, building out their social network or helping them um, with career placement? Um, sometimes it's just as simple as diapers. You know, if you're on welfare with EBT cards, you can't purchase diapers. That's just, it's not an approved item. But diapers are so expensive that, you know, once you do get a little bit of money, it's gone because you need to take care of the kids, you know. So Tia is there for all of it. If you have been feeling called to up level and more deeply step into your purpose and develop a plan for really tackling a project or a passion that you've been wanting to bring to fruition, I've got a private one-on-one mentorship series available for you. It's a one-on-one with me for six weeks, and I'm bringing in expertise as a behavior change specialist. We'll be doing energetic healing. We'll be doing goal setting and uh, really bringing a vision to life for you. So if you have something specific that you've been wanting to work on, maybe this is the right opportunity for you to step into your power, invest in yourself and hang out with me for a little while. So you can go to helendenham.com slash mentorship to find out more about that. And if you don't want to work one-on-one, I also have a self-mastery course available called Cultivating Confidence. So same thing, helendenham.com slash course. uh, And you can find all of that in the description below. Love you. Thanks for listening. Back to the episode with Maimuna. A question that popped into mind too was like, what uh, percentage do you think of refugees end up houseless once they come in after the 90 days? Like how, how extensive is that? 
Yeah, so before, I mean, maybe like 10%, you would hear about ending up in a shelter. Now, um, I don't know. I'm really afraid to even estimate because it's just, it's so bizarre to me to see um, this issue around housing. And I think even um, before, I mean, you don't even have to arrive to America. You could be American born and realize that there's like a housing crisis. We have so much homelessness right now. So um, I, I don't know. I just, yeah. I just stay in my lane and do what I can, you know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, how do you see this reflecting too in the indigenous communities we have already in the United States? Like what kind of yeah. parallels are being drawn here and how can we just like fathom that a little better? Exactly. So um, as I mentioned, my family does identify as indigenous to East Africa. I mean, there's been colonization, there's been um, technology, there's been a lot of developments, but we're still a nomadic tribe. You know, we're very grounded in our ancestral uh, practices and um, just way of doing life, you know. So here, um, I know that there's local families indigenous to this sacred land that too have been um, displaced, just like my family has experienced it. So I'm building that bridge right now. Um, it hasn't been in like a organizational way. It's not through organizations, it's through individuals. That's how it's been working for us. And that's how it's worked with the refugee population. So I don't go and approach an organization and say, do you have refugees? Can you refer them to us? It's through word of mouth, trust building, relationships. So that's what we're doing with the indigenous community as well. Um, one way of celebrating that this past November was with Chef Louis. Um, his background is Navajo. And um, you know he's all about preserving his family's food and recipes. So we invited him um, to be a chef in November and I let him know that um, I'm here because of Native American Heritage Month. We're not even acknowledging Thanksgiving. Um, you won't see that anywhere in our marketing, um, but we want this to be as like a way of showing solidarity between the refugees that we work with, the asylum seekers we work with, and then like locally um, displaced families here. Yeah. Can you help us understand too, how does displacement happen? I think we have a general idea of kind of like big corporations coming in, uh, taking over land, but can you help us understand like how is this mass displacement happening both in Africa and with your family's history and also in the immediate environments and in current life? Yeah. Current life day to day, we see it all the time with gentrification. Um, that's just for some reason that that's just how what I've been witnessing, you know, the last few years, especially in LA County, um, you have like communities and neighborhoods of families that have been there for generations. Uh, property value goes up all of a sudden because you have corporations or businesses that move in um, to the neighborhood. Um, and as the values go up, um, they are tempted to sell their homes because there is that sense of like autonomy. Um, but when, by the time they sell their homes, the neighbors can't afford it. So it would be, that's how the gentrification cycle is happening because the people that could afford the new prices to the home don't represent necessarily the local community, which is what you see in all parts of the world 
where resorts are coming in, villas are coming in, corporations are coming in, property values are changing, but it doesn't represent the resources that the locals have. So that's one way. Another way is just um, civil wars um, and crises and violence that happens. Um, there's also climate changes that happen. You know, in East Africa, we're known for droughts. Um, Haiti is known for, you know, earthquakes. Um, you have other regions, you know, that deal with tornadoes. So um, climate change is, is a huge factor to that. Um, and then there's also politics. So um, maybe you're not protected by your government because you have a different view than them. Maybe you're not protected by your government because of your um, sexual orientation. Maybe you're not protected by the government because they practice like uh, female genital mutilation. You know, there's so many factors to it that when you look at the numbers, I feel like most of us have been displaced, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, that's a pretty eye-opening way to look at it for sure. Um, how many people do you think are in these camps in Africa, just out of curiosity? Like were, how many people were in your parents' camp? You know, that's a great number. I have to look that up because that was the 80s. Um, Do you think it's now, like thousands or like whole towns basically? Oh my gosh. I think it's, let me, I could, let me look it up real quick for you. So number of displaced persons. Um, right now, the number is more than 84 million people. That's just, it gave me chills. It's just absolutely wild to think about. Yeah, they either um, identify as refugees, asylum seekers, or internally displaced. Internally displaced, um, I, that's where I would classify indigenous families um, because that, there are people within their own countries, for whatever reason, have been displaced from their, their family land, like their sacred lands. Um, yeah, 84 million is the number right now. And I remember before the pandemic, I was sharing numbers like, you know, 50 million, 70 million, but it just keeps growing. Yeah. Especially as you were just saying with like climate change, especially as well. It's like, it's so apparent. It's so obvious. It's like glaring in our faces. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned, you know, that your, your mother has been open about, um, PTSD and struggling with that. And then you took over as, uh, as a uh, head of Tia and, how do you find that people in, in your community and in general, displaced families and, and people are overcoming PTSD? Like what are some resources that they go to or, or what's the general approach for dealing with that kind of trauma? I think it's a, it's a new phenomenon. Um, a lot of these communities don't believe in like one-on-one -on -one talk therapy. Um, there's been very like more communal approaches or um, group approaches or spirituality or religion, what have you. Um, that's always been the go-to. But as I mentioned, the numbers of displacement have gone up. So therapy has been changing. So the landscape of therapy is trying to be more diverse, um, trying to be um, more, provide more like language access for people to trust the one-on-one -on -one conversations and dialogue. Um, so I've, I've been seeing some shift in that. Um, but it's not the original go-to. I think the families that I've come across so far, they, they first and foremost give thanks to, um, their religion, you know, their spiritual journey, um, whatever name they give to the creator, you know, that, that's, 
that's where they, that's their go-to, that's natural. Um, therapy, PTSD. PTSD, I think, has just been really studied, you know, especially CPTSD, complex PTSD. These are very new um, things, I think the last few decades. Um, EMDR is pretty new. So as therapy changes, I think there'll be more resources to um, help more refugees. Yeah, and it sounds like community and finding community is such an integral part of this as well, because I imagine, like you were just saying, the language barrier comes into play and feeling just like you don't recognize yourself in your community. Um, yeah. what, did, what did you as well, and your parents, you, you touched on this a little bit, like living in Orange County, coming out of a drastically different environment, coming into Orange County where you don't see faces that look like your own, like, how do you deal with that? How have you personally dealt with that as well? Oh, wow. Oh, uh, yeah, there's so many layers there. Great question. Um, <laughs> I think that each member of the family um, processed things differently. Um, I myself, I, I leaned into arts and music. That's been my go-to. Um, I felt disconnected from like the Black diaspora overall. So um, I felt more connected through the arts, through the music, through literature. Um, that's kind of where I found my grounding. Um, I also wanted to like eventually be the director of a nonprofit, preferably a museum or somewhere that like works with like multicultural communities because it's very mono-ethnic in Orange County, at least like during my upbringing. There's been some shift now, but still not enough like black families or black immigrant families where I feel like I see myself. Um, I think I see more of my reflection in places like LA. Um, or even San Diego. So um, the coping for me has been through the arts, you know, through the music and all that. And my dad, um, he's just, he was just so resor resourceful, you know? I mean, the man was working like seven days a week, my, most of my life. Um, and then my mom, um, her go-to was spirituality. So when she would have these like memories and stuff, like she was just, take herself to the room and, and do her prayers. And um, that's what works for her. It was very grounding. Um, I also noticed like, she's a great chef. She does gardening. She likes to spend time with family members. Uh, she's very thoughtful. So um, yeah, so there were, there were other modalities for her. Um, talk therapy has not been her, her favorite, not, not her jam. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you say that too. Yeah, and it reminds me, you know, as I'm also kind of experiencing or just witnessing, um, you know, friends I call my brothers that I've been living with who are also part of a, a wonderful indigenous Chumash community and, um, you know, watching them work through similar things and reconnecting with community and, and seeing that very clearly as well. Like sitting down one-on-one -on -one to go deep and like deep dive is not working. It's like, <laughs> it's just like, we need to feel like we're in a circle in ceremony together, tapping in together, remembering who we are as people, remembering our humanity and working on forgiveness, like so many layers. Um, but yeah, yeah. I feel like displaced people, I mean, when you lean in, they are the practitioners of radical forgiveness. Like it's crazy. The amounts of things that they're able to forgive. And then, um, just to, you know, sit with people and then see them as, as a person, you know, even though like there's all this like history or chaos currently, you know, 
past, present, future. Um, it's all about that individual connection. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for someone like myself who, who did not grow up in that kind of environment, we were having a good, you know, fire circle discussion the other night and uh, we were hearing these kids like play like down the street. They were singing like ring around the Rosie and we could hear them playing. And my perception of that was like, Oh, that's so cute. And my friend who is an indigenous native guy, who was like that, that scares me. Like that, the sound of those kids singing like that, it elicits fear in me. It reminds me of this other circumstance where um, I was being harmed and I, you know, it, it just brought up a, a lot of really interesting um, thought patterns and, and completely different experiences. And it led us into this conversation of like, imagining like, you know, historically their ancestors went through this, um, sitting in a circle having food together, holding ceremony together, and literally watching people come with weapons and attack you in your sacred space. And we all just kind of took a moment to drop into what that would feel like and how scary that would be and what kind of fear that would elicit and how triggering it would be to even hear like joyful playing or something trigger you into thinking that you're going to be um, uh, hurt. And I think that was just a really important for myself to have, but us as a circle to really look at each other and be like, whoa, you've, you've been through something really heavy. And this is not, this is intergenerational trauma that goes way back and is instilled in us from such an early age. But yeah, you could trace it in the DNA. Mm -hmm. They say like seven generations back, right? That, that, yeah. that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how do you have conversations like this with your daughter? How do you help her perceive? Well, she's young. She's four. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah she's four. Yeah, we can't have those conversations yet. But um, I keep telling, because my husband's Palestinian. I keep telling her, I'm like, you're a beautiful black girl. And she was like, no, I'm honey chocolate. Baba's honey. You're chocolate. I'm honey chocolate. So I love that she celebrates both of her, like both sides of her. Um, and then sees it as like one. So of course, like, you know, the term honey chocolate just sounds like its own dessert. And my poor husband is like, can you just stop referring to food? Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. What Has your husband had his own experience with like, you know, family lines and displacement or what, what's his history been like? Oh yeah, it's very uh, sensitive. So um, his background is Palestinian. Um, his parents and generations before, they're all from Jerusalem. I'm sure they could trace some connection back to Jesus. I mean, it's, it's just so deep there. Um, there was displacement in 45, um, and that's where both sides of his family fled into uh, Syria and Jordan. And then the parents um, later on met. These places that they... Um, that they fled to um, are the stateless communities that I mentioned earlier. So there are towns in Jordan that are known by the government to be refugee camps. But um, since 1945, like they basically turned into like towns and mini cities. And they, I assume they're kind of like unregulated, right? Like they they kind of get little drop-offs and resources once in a while. Is that correct? But otherwise it's yeah. just kind of like a free-for-all. Yeah. 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 And you're not, um, you're not guaranteed citizenship. Mm -hmm. And yeah. is it, does it tend to get violent in these communities or what's the environment usually? I'm sure, I'm sure it does. 
I mean, we, there's a lot of research globally, no matter what community you're from, like there's a connection between poverty and violence. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. And it's not a direct connection. I'm, I'm saying like there's wealthy people that are violent and, you know, wealthy homes that have domestic abuse and all that. But, yeah. um, but there is like a vulnerability to um, bad people, you know, when you don't have enough resources. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just trying to comprehend, you know, where does most of the PTSD come from for, from displaced people? Is it, is it violence based? Is it witnessing violence or is it um, deep trauma of not having enough resources in general? Is it uh, feelings of hopelessness or, um, you know, what's all, kind of all of the above. Yeah. All of the above. And then feeling gaslit by the system. Cause there's this um, belief that it's your fault that you're not successful or uh, if you work a little harder, you know, you're going to get far, but then um, there are systems in place that um, make it very difficult for huge groups and huge populations of people, you know, um, look at the border, you know, families that, that it's their right to come to U.S. soil and ask for asylum. That's, that's part of the constitution. That's part of the law, you know, in laws in the U.S. say that you could touch U.S. soil and request asylum, but they're being whipped or turned away or put into detention centers or what have you, or um, they're devalued or demoralized, or you think the parents are bad because they're separated from their children, you know? So there is this like systemic issue that we have to look at and address. So um, displaced people, though there's like some beautiful stories, you know, of starting over, starting anew. Um, I see them as alchemists, you know, being able to create things from nothing. I think it's beautiful. Um, but it's not, it's not an easy ride or easy journey when you have a system in place that, um, wants you to just stay over here, you know? Right. Right. This is such a, big conversation around privilege, first of all, and second of all, like, where's our community and our humanity and our care for one another and just general compassion? Because I think the American way of thinking, and I've definitely been guilty of this as well, is just like rugged individualism. Like everybody is for themselves, by themselves. You have yeah. to work hard and make it. And like, I've been just unraveling my own programming. Like, no, you're not mm -hmm. alone. You, community is really important here. And we are not meant to like work and die. Like we need, yeah. to, we need to be able to experience joy. It's our birthright. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, much bigger thing going on here. But I haven't even asked you about um, flavors from afar yet. Um, so yes. I'd love to hear about that and like the whole mission behind that as well. So it's Tia and flavors from afar and they're, yes. they're kind of connected, right? Yes, 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 they are. So um, where to start? Um, I'll start with the model. So um, our business model at Flavors from Afar does not exist anywhere else in LA County um, because we rotate our um, dishes and menu items every month. So I like to tell people that we rotate the menu, not the people. So we have a team in-house. Uh, we have our program instructor, Kenna. We have two resident chefs right now is uh, Sonia and Theo. Um, we have um, a supporting team member. Um, he, you know, he, su he supports within the kitchen. So some of them are asylum seekers. So, um, and his name's Pierre. So we have like the two residents, um, Sonia, Theo, we have Pierre. So you got the four of them. 
that man the ship every day. Then we have our visiting chef that comes in, workshops with Kenna to um, create a menu. Um, we put together the menu with them. We take their headshots. We take photos of the food. We do all the marketing. At the end of the month, we say that, you know, they're just as important as the light bills. So they get 5% of the gross sales. So they don't have to wait for net profit. The gross sales, they receive 5%. Now, if they're selected to be on the classic menu or they're selected to be on like the, um, the side option menu, that same 5% they receive throughout the year. So um, this is passive income for the chefs that we work with. Um, it's been really beautiful. You know, this whole year, you know, uh, not only have we had Navajo cuisine, we've also had Lebanese, uh, Chechen, um, Afghanistan, Venezuelan, Haitian, uh, Palestinian, Somali, Guatemalan. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge global um, um, experience. Uh, now, on the back end, if I have anyone listening now that's like all about logistics, <laughs> um, we also take care of that because we tell the chefs what proteins we work with. So no matter um, what month you visit, you always have a vegan option, vegetarian options. Um, there is, um, for the pescatarians, we'll always have like a fish dish. There's also the, the chicken, the beef, the lamb, sometimes goat you know, so that all varies. So um, we make sure that, you know, everyone's welcome. Everyone has um, dishes and options that they could choose from. Um, and then it doesn't really alter our um, shopping list each month. Like it's very similar each month, unless like, I think there was like a ox dish that we tried with the Haitian menu and um, had some obstacles with like the spices or whatever. But um that's very rare. So it's been really great. It's a great model. And then 40% goes back to the nonprofit to help Tia's programmings. Um, and it's just great because it really invites foodies, um, people that want to travel through flavor um, and try different dishes without having to leave Los Angeles. So that's been lovely to see. And they feel nourished knowing that it's a gift that continues giving. So um, it doesn't stop at the dinner table. You know, this is now you're helping other families, like paying it forward. Yeah. What made you want to focus on um, a restaurant and food in general? Like, where did that passion come from? Survival. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, during the Trump administration, um, I did, there was like no priority around refugee and immigrant services. So um, I had to figure out if I wanted to keep Tia, then. I really needed to take sustainability seriously. So I pursued originally um, as a catering concept. Um, and I, I can't take all the credit because we had a social enterprise committee. Uh, one of the members that led the committee was a former asylum seeker from Egypt. So we all had meetings and discussions around this concept. Um, started off originally as catering, which got pretty popular as I was like losing resources, you know. So I was it was a weird transition <laughs> period for me, right? It was like, it was a lot of meditating needed. <laughs> really had to stay focused. Um, yeah, so um, 2019, I won a pitch competition. I was the only employee at the time um, at the organization. I won a pitch competition when I presented the concept for the catering. I won about $50,000. Uh, 
And then from there, um, I created a partnership with the Sun Family Foundation. Uh, Sun Family Foundation helped me um, figure out the brick and mortar in Little Ethiopia. So you'll see their name on the door when you visit. Um, we really give them a lot of credit. And it wasn't long after where um, I onboarded Christian and I told him, look, like I, I can't do this on my own. Um, you know, would you please like help manage the space? We both had no experience um, in the food world, especially the restaurant industry. So, um, you know, we just had the audacity to open a restaurant. I wanted it to be spring. Um, spring solstice means a lot to me. So I wanted to open it up in um, spring, March 2020. Had no idea it would be the same week as the stay at home orders. Yeah. Um, so while like the big dogs and the big players in the restaurant industry were shutting their doors, you know, being very strategic, I um, wanted to keep the doors open, even if we were going to be a takeout spot. Um, thought we could just like wait it out a little bit, but um, we're still here. We're open and um, we're going to be listed as the top 101, top 101 restaurants in LA County. I love that. I can't wait to come. Where I'm like kind of new to LA in a weird way because I'm in Topanga, I'm in the mountains. But where is Little Ethiopia again in LA? Yeah. Are you familiar with the 10 freeway? Oh no. I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> but, uh, the 405? Yeah. Okay. So if you went down like the 405 and then up the 10, you would exit Fairfax. Mm -hmm. And then a Fairfax would lead you to Little Ethiopia. And we're right on Fairfax, 1046 South is the address. 1046 South Fairfax, and we're right at the crosswalk in Little Ethiopia. Great. I'm going to have to take a little adventure and go out there. That's very exciting. I mean, it's just so inspiring to hear you talk about this, especially like not having experience in the restaurant world and just like going for it because I, I feel like that's what holds so many of us back is like, oh, I don't know how to do this, so I'm just not going to do it. But like nobody really knows what they're doing when they start. So just going for it is so inspiring to hear your story. And I'm so happy that you're still up and running and that 40% is going to Tia. So, I mean, it's just amazing. And, and, you know, I wanted to ask you too, like for those of us listening and, and you know, being so inspired by your story and your knowledge, like what can we do to actively be more helpful? Because I, I love what you were saying earlier. It's like, you can't just walk into a community and wave your hand and be like, Hey, I'm here to help. Like it, it, it's a much more like underground organic word of mouth kind of situation. So how can we get more involved on the ground with our communities so that we can start to make a, an impact um, as a unit? Yeah. So um, I am all about mutual support, mutual aid. So you don't have to work with Tia to make it happen. If you want to do it on your own, um, I would just start off with like helping one person do it really well, uh, whatever it is that you're passionate about or however way you want to support. If you do a good job, people will refer you. You know, that, that's all. That's the name of the game. You do good, people refer quality. So that's really important. Um, if you want to support the TF Foundation, we are a 501c3. It is the end of the year. So you're welcome to go to TIA.org. That's T-I-Y-Y-A dot O-R-G to make a donation that's tax deductible. Um, and if you're the experienced kind of person, I really recommend stopping by the restaurant. You know, we're available for catering, private dining. Um, you could also stop by to enjoy um, any of our menu options from 12 to 8 p.m. Wednesday through Sunday. 
Amazing. I'm going to be there soon. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to touch on or just reflect on uh, before we go? Like any, any themes that, you know, come well, to for you? When I met you, um, I would love to know your opinion. Uh, when I met you, I catered the event for the film. Um, how was your experience with the food? Oh, with the, oh, it's so good. <laughs> we snuck out. <laughs> we were in the back row intentionally to sneak out the back to get more food. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I forget what, what was the um, cuisine like lineage that night? Like what kind of food were we eating? It was like, so this, uh-huh. yeah. the, the sambusas were uh, Somali. Mm -hmm. uh, the dumplings that you had were from Afghanistan. Um, there's also like a cucumber salad that was Palestinian. Um, anything else you remember from the menu? Oh, the dumplings. oh yeah. 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 That was also from Afghanistan. Yeah. All well, I'm talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like time for lunch over here. So good. Um, well, thank you so much, Maymuna, for being here. And thank you for, for giving us the website description and everything. I'm going to link everything in the description below. Um, and I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing and, and for giving us insight into your, to your world. Um, so how can people stay in touch with you further, like social media, um, any other links you want to drop? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, there's a few links you could mostly find us on Instagram. So, um, my account is Mimuna Katan, M-E-Y-M-U-N-A-C-A-T-T-A-N. Um, and then the two brands, uh, there's Tia Foundation, T-I-Y-Y-A-F-D-N. And then flavors from afar. So it just how it sounds. So you would put flavors from afar.co, which is actually our website as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited for everybody to get to know you and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I hope you're feeling inspired, lifted, like you learned something new. Um, again, all the websites and socials are linked below. Please hit us up on Instagram. We'd love to chat with you, learn about you and what you're experiencing in life right now. Um, yeah, a couple other little things. If you're new to the show, by the way, episodes drop every Wednesday morning. So come hang out on Wednesday mornings. And uh, I am now teaching meditation with Unplug Meditation Studio. So if you live in Los Angeles, I'm teaching Sunday nights at 8 p.m. at their Santa Monica location. And you can also join virtually wherever you are, 8 o'clock self-care Sundays. <laughs> I'd love to see you in a meditation class. That would be awesome. Um, again, my website's helendenham.com. You can find blog posts there, past podcast episodes, uh, course information, one-on-one -on -one mentorship information, music, newsletter sign up. I send out a newsletter every Sunday. So sending you so much love. Thank you again for being here. Talk to you on Wednesday. Bye.